Welcome to the Pessel. Reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Spam Robocallings. This is the U.S. credit card company calling with important information. Now, let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to the Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Pearson Hardman. Stop wasting time with lawyers who specialize. Our attorneys are good at everything. Get the best at Pearson Hardman. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we do what we do as filmmakers and creators. Uh, we like to analyze a film, see how it's working, what's going on underneath the hood, maybe at a story level, uh, the cinematography, how do they play together, uh, performance, we're actors. And so we also like to talk about uh, acting techniques and all kinds of things. Todd's a musician. He's got a great band, if you've been listening. Um, and he always got something interesting to say uh, when certain composers pop up. Yeah, and so we like to use all of that information to analyze and discuss films and tease them apart and see you know, if we can grind them up like a mortar and pestle to see what they're made of. Good movies tend to have a lot of things going on under the hood. I mean, even bad movies honestly have a lot going on. Uh, it's hard to make any movie, good or bad. Making a movie is so hard. It takes so much out of you. It takes years, years of work. Imagine spending the last, you know, two, three, four years and having one thing done. <laughs> like you got, you went through all that and you did one thing. <laughs> like, congratulations. And then it's not good. And you're like, oh, the same amount of energy goes into making bad movies as it does to make good movies. Um, and you just can't always know which one you're making until it's, it's done with. Yeah. That's part of the, the whole taste. And that's the problem with creating, man. You know, you, you just don't always know what it is until it's done. Like, is the cake good? Great point. Let's eat it. Let's find out, you know? Yeah. Is that your experience as a, as a creator yourself? Like, um, you, you start out with a good idea, like the song is going to be this and it's going to be good. And, you get to the end of it and you're like, the song is now this and it's okay. <laughs> yeah. So all the time, it's so all fine. the time. It's so, it's so weird. I, I have, I, I, I think it's, there's no way to really know until you get in, I think until you start because you have it in your head, you have it or on paper or whatever. And then it has to manifest into some form of whatever that is. So if it's in your head, it's a, you have a visual in your head, it can be anything and it changes spontaneously because that's just conscious thought. But then when you get it down on paper, it becomes more, you know, hard, like, I guess, hardened a little bit and you can see the flaws, you see the cracks, you can kind of like tweak it and stuff. But then especially with a film, you know, you get in, you start filming and you start, you know, cutting it and, and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden it's, does this feel the way that it felt three iterations ago when it was in my head. I mean, that takes a lot to go from your head to then an edit and all the moving parts in between. I mean, I, I it's, it's mind boggling hardly hard to, to do that. You have to be an incredible director to be able to do that. When you're talking about music, you know, it's a little different. I think it's easier because I could mm -hmm. literally go in and make a change instantly to make it what, more along the aligned with what was in my head at the beginning, you know, or you start with nothing in your head and then whatever comes out is what it is. Right. And that's, that's better musically. That's the way it's supposed <laughs> to be where you have nothing and then you don't think you just create something and then it is what it is. And then you can fine tune it and tweak it and stuff. It's so much easier musically when you have a film 
you have to have everything ready, everything buttoned up. And if you don't, you know, I mean, there are, there's plenty of time, like films like that, where you go in and you let the actors, you know, improvise, Mm. but everything around that is planned, right? Even to the point of, I trust my actors, you know, implicitly to give me something to use in my edit, to give me that feeling that I wanted to have. Right. So everything is still planned other than what they're going to say. Like there's, it's still, it does the end justify the beginning. And it, I, I, I mean, how do you do it as a director? I, I don't know. It's, it's very hard. It's very, very hard. It is like the frustrating part, you know, whenever you're, you're creating something like this, um, a, a film is you get into the editing room or you're, you're, you're on set, you're shooting all this stuff. Now, when you're on set, the whole world is alive and you can see everything at once, but you're only capturing a little bit. You're only capturing this shot right now. Um, and then, and so on set, it feels like you're getting everything you need because you're there, you're present, you're completely immersed in the scene. But when you get into post, suddenly you're only looking at one small piece of the puzzle. You're looking at this shot and you're, you're playing this shot back and you're like, oh God, what is this? And then uh, it's hard to look at one piece of the puzzle and see the entire puzzle. And so that process of going through and like culling all the bad puzzle pieces and like, okay, we don't want that. Uh, we want this. And now this is going to make for a much more interesting puzzle. Um, and it's going to tell the, the the picture that I really want to tell. And it's not until you get much deeper into that editing process of seeing all the pieces kind of fitting together finally, where you're like, okay, See, there is a picture here. I knew there was a picture here. Uh, I, I planned for there to be. I just suddenly had, I know I was no longer sure. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, you're constantly being rocked. You know, your world is constantly being thrown askew um, in that whole process. And when you write the story, you feel really good. You get into rehearsals, you suddenly don't feel good. Um, and then you get on set, you feel really good again, because now it's, it's not just people in a, in a white room you know, yelling lines at each other. Now it's like set design, there's um, lighting, there's a camera move and you're seeing it through the monitor and all the performance. Now the actors are really in it. They're not holding back anymore. Suddenly it's like, Oh yeah, I knew what I was doing the whole time. And so (laughs) it's always the whole time. And then you get through that first rough cut and you're like, Oh God, what did I do? I can't show this to anyone. No one's ever going to trust me to make a thing with them again. Like uh, I've ruined everyone's, you know, faith in me. Uh, And then it's like, well, how about you tighten that shot? Maybe you cut the scene. Maybe you uh, let that shot linger a little longer. And now let's get some music in. Okay. Well, look, suddenly there's a lot more life here. The scene was working without the music. And now it's really like punching you in the face with the music. Uh, And, just trusting the process. Like we're big process guys. And, um, I'm all about like, stop beating yourself up. Well, no, I'm not all about that, but I I try to say pause on beating yourself up for just a a minute, get through your process. And then if you hate yourself, fine, let, let, let the words fly. Um, but until that point you are forbidden from like jumping the gun, like just wait, let the bullet get out first. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a whole crazy process. And we like to, I, I think, use all of that like empathy <laughs> of what we of what we know when we're looking at films to see what worked, what didn't work, um, what could have been done differently or, oh, my God, I can't believe he had that idea. Like those are the ones that always get me is seeing someone yeah. else have an incredible idea. And I love that feeling of just jealousy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's that's I mean, when you're writing 
lyrics for a song. I think that's what you're you're going for too, of like saying something. Uh, I was just talking to my buddy Jet yesterday about this, about, um, and I, I'll die on this hill. I think Taylor Swift is amazing. I think she's incredible. And her, she had, one of the reasons is she has a way of saying things that I already knew in a new way. Like, or just like turn a phrase, you know, for lack of a better term. Bono was amazing at that. So it's, I think it's similar, maybe, maybe visually more, maybe, maybe, you know, in, when it comes to film, maybe like something someone says could be a turn of phrase, but I think more so for, for film, it's more of a visual thing of like a, like a, a, a motivated camera move, right? Somebody is, you're, you're, somebody's looking at you and they turn this way. And so the camera turns with it or something like yeah. that, but it does it in a way where we haven't seen that before done that way, but it's purposeful. And, you know, we're turning with the person, something like that, yeah. where it's, it's very understated. We're not calling attention to it, but it's, it jumps out to someone like you, who's a filmmaker who says, wow, that was really very cool how, that they did that. And then they, they didn't belabor it. They moved on to the next thing. Understatedness is so wonderful because it makes you, it makes you feel like the person who made it did it without thinking, you know, yeah. like, right. It's just, Oh, there's a thing this thing you've never seen before. Right. Yeah. You know, and you don't even need that many of them, like maybe one or two in a movie. And all of a sudden the movie becomes like much more in your mind thought out yeah. because of those couple of moments, you know, that were special that were provided to you, you know, whereas, and, and you know, the person like, you know, the director or the writer when they wrote it or, or, had that shot they were like they're like oh my gosh this is awesome i i just found something new this is so cool because you know everything's been done before but then they understate it to make it seem like it's just a passing thing you know so cool uh, nicely said yeah what uh what are we covering today man today we are covering gareth edwards the creator uh which is at least at the point of uh recording now is still in theater so if you haven't seen it please go pause this uh, episode and go to the theater, go watch it um, in the theater. If you can, I uh, recommend that. Uh, yeah. Cause we're going to spoil a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. And I think this is probably best on a big screen. Like that just feels yeah. like right. Yeah. Uh, but we'll look at a bunch of stuff. Definitely talk about the story and the writing um, humanizing the enemy. Uh, we'll reference some of the performances and talk a little about music and sound design and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film. In a war between humans and robots with artificial intelligence, a former soldier finds the secret weapon, a robot in the form of a young child. Directed by Gareth Edwards, screenplay by Gareth Edwards and Chris Weitz, cinematography by Greg Fraser and Oren Soffer. It's featuring John David Washington as Joshua Taylor, Madeline Yuna Voiles as Alfie, Gemma Chan as Maya, Allison Janie as Colonel Howell and Ken Watanabe as Harun. Shipley, it's Howell. Answer the phone. Shipley, I know you're there. Colonel. Taylor, where's Shipley? I'm with him right now. He's in, he's in pretty bad shape. All right, listen to me. Did you locate the weapon? Yeah, it's here. I'm with it. Describe it. It's a kid. It, it's, it's a kid. They make it into some kind of kid. It, that, that's the weapon. What? Colonel, I can't reach you. You have to bring it to me. Do you understand? No, Shipley can't move. I mean, he's he's not looking good at all. Police are everywhere. I don't know how I'm getting out right now. I, I don't even have an exercise right then now. Then you know what you have to do. Kill it. 
What? Look, Colonel, I... How? So... This, uh... This has had a lot of buzz in the, the the little indie market, like creators with no money are looking at this like, oh my God. And so I know there's a lot of buzz there and, you know, we can talk about that and I expect we will, but just on its own merits, how did you feel about the creator, the good and the bad, um, what worked, what didn't. And yeah, the sci-fi, original sci-fi is hard to come by. And so are you, uh, is there any any highlights, I guess, uh, in, in this experience for you? Yeah, I would say definitely. I mean, you know, I wasn't, I didn't walk away from it like blown away, Mm -hmm. uh, like I had hoped. Right. But that doesn't take anything away from, I want more sci-fi. I just always (laughs) want more sci-fi. Sci-fi is my, my jam as I know it's yours. So uh, don't let that take away from anybody who's out there wanting to make more sci-fi. Please do it please do it. Cause I still think that it was just beautifully shot. There are some, there are some scenes that are just so gorgeous. Um, the explosions from the, the, whatever the, what was it called? The, the ship up in nomad. the sky. Yeah. Nomad. The explosions were unbelievably done, uh, well done. And, uh, like very visceral. The sound was in- incredible. The music was beautiful and out of the way. I mean, you know, I didn't have any idea it was Hans Zimmer until the credits. And then I was like, Oh, I need to go watch this again. <laughs> um, uh, Hans has a way of, of putting either his music right up front where you can't ignore it or putting it way in the back where you don't even notice it. And it's just supportive. It's just, he's, he's the best in my mind. I, I, I thought that it was a great story in the fact that, that, AI is so front and center right now. It's so annoying. It's it's honestly annoying. I hear AI 40 times a day, especially in my line of work. So it, it just becomes an afterthought. It's not anything that like means anything yet uh, because AI still sucks in a lot of ways. Some it, It's just good at doing monotonous things that we don't necessarily want to spend five hours doing that I can do in five minutes. And that's great. But that's not what AI is to me. Like to me, AI is something that, that is much scarier, um, Mm -hmm. and not in a negative way, just sometimes in a negative way, but it's this thing that like, we don't understand. We, the, the, I mean, even the people who design it don't know how it works and they've admitted that they don't know how it works. And, and it's, it's a, it can be construed as a scary thing, but I like that this story has brought it to where I would imagine AI actually being which is a living conscious being uh, that a living being that's conscious of itself and of others around it and is empathetic to others around it uh, and as we learn throughout this story is empathetic to even even other races and mm. other species uh which i think is a nod you know to like you know westerners even or whomever to be to acknowledge you know the 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 importance of the rest of the world not just people that look like you right or just everyone acknowledging everyone else as equally important right um i love that they the story sets it up to where humans think that it was ai who destroyed um la when in reality it wasn't um and all ai wants to do is live is is live free 
you know, uh, I think that's a, has to be an obvious nod as well to plug in, yeah. <laughs> you know, plug in said scenario. Yeah. And, you know, there's your nod. Um, so it has all the makings of something that could be like, I would say timeless um, in a way. I mean, it's really is really strong in that regard. And then at the end, we get up to Nomad and and we have this like really cool space uh, experience. So we have the world experience and the war and everything. And then we get to go up to base and it's, it's great. It all just still feel felt to me. And I don't know how to put it in, into, into context, but maybe you can, maybe you can help me. It feels like disjointed to me. It doesn't feel uh, like I can, and maybe that's the point of it. It doesn't feel like I can sit back and just take it in. It feels like it's, it's making me participate, but in a way that's, that's, I have to go deeper into it. I, I can't just participate by being in the moment with it or with this character or empathizing with another character while I'm with this character. It's It feels like it's asking more of me and it's not telling me um, what it's asking for. Uh, so by the end of it, I just f- feel a little let down, um, for lack of a better term. And I, I, I let down because I can't put into words what I'm missing. That's the other thing. Cause I have, like I said, I have all the pieces. I have all yeah. these great pieces and the kid is a wonderful actor. I mean, my God, he's such a great actor and we love, we love John David Washington. Um, I think he's fantastic in this, um, great casting. So what is it? You it's, know? Yeah. I think, I mean, she's amazing. Uh, Madeline Una Foyles, uh, yeah. Alfie. Uh, <laughs> if every, if she isn't in like at least two or three of the biggest movies over the next three, four years, Hollywood is, you know, blind. Um, mm-hmm. like she should be in Spielberg should be dusting off a script that he's been holding on to for the last 15 years, waiting for the right child actor. Yeah. You have it go uh same thing with whoever else i don't even care like there should be so many scripts waiting for the right child actor and it's her she was unbelievable without her and like you said we love john david washington but without her this movie falls completely flat like her and him together were just magic complete Mm -hmm. complete magic and it still relies on her like to deliver what she's delivering like I'm in, I'm in tears watching her and I'm like, I don't know that much about what's going on in the story. And, uh, like the, and I think what you're feeling is the, the soft arc that it needed a stronger arc from, from Joshua Taylor's character, that character just his, yeah, his shift is so gradual. Like it's almost imperceptible of why and when he shifts his perception of AI because at the beginning of the film, two things, one, he's camped out with all these AI beings. So whatever they are, he's known about for probably years. Like I don't suspect he and, uh, Maya, uh, Narmada, right. I don't suspect they were together for, you know, six weeks. Like they have a kid on the way that's right around the corner or, somewhere around the corner. So I'd, I'd expect he's been in this 
whatever it is, uh, undercover situation for at least one or two years. Um, and that's a lot of time to get familiar with AI and to feel like you know what they're about and to gain any kind of empathy. So for one, his character shouldn't be blindsided by the idea that they have very, you know, nuanced ideas about humanity. Like what Haroon tells him later on in the film should have been obvious to him because he's been with them for so long. Uh, so him gaining new insight is pretty hard to sell for me. Um, and so you have that at the beginning. That's the establishing of uh, Taylor. And then as you know, we find out five years later, right? He's working in ground zero site, pulling bodies out of cars and whatever. And he runs into this uh, machine, this robot that's still kind of active and the robot's freaking out and the, seeing it fight for its survival and beg and plead. Um, it f- freaks out, you know, his coworker. She's like, what the hell? What was that? No, that's different. Like what, what and he's his comment to her. And he just looks at her really deadpan. Like they don't feel, they don't feel anything. It's just programming. Like stop, stop treating it like a person. that's not, it's just programming. And to go from that to, you know, he, and there's these little moments and I had to really pay attention my second time through. They ordered him to kill Alfie, which is that clip we played, right? Um, Colonel Howell is telling him, you know what you have to do. You have to kill him. Now he's looking at Alfie like, oh my God, this is now a big emotional test. And ultimately he can't do it. He grabs her and he's like, okay, I'm going to figure out a way to get to the Colonel. Then she can deal with it. Like that's kind of the, the implied attitude, even though it's never stated. And then he has that conversation with Haroon, uh, played by Ken Watanabe, which I'm so glad. Every time I get to see him on screen, I'm so I thankful. <laughs> like, he's so good. <laughs> he's amazing. He needs to have his own vehicles. And I'm, I'm yeah. frustrated that he doesn't get more of those opportunities, at least in American films. And he has that conversation with him whenever he gets captured. Taylor gets captured and Haroon is telling him, you know what will happen to humans when we win? Nothing. We just want to be free. And that's a big moment. Uh, and then I think the final moment of his turning is finding out that Alfie is actually his kid. It's a copy of his embryo from that he made with his wife, which is the, the big emotional driving force for him is finding his wife, Maya. And now to find out that what this person is, this little kid is actually my kid and they, they're full of. And so it's such a soft arc Um, And the nice thing too about him and this kid and this whole situation, which is what all of this kind of feels like. It feels like a situation more than really a story is Narmada Maya loved robots. She loved, you know, AI. She saw their humanity through their hardware and their software. And she also loved Joshua, you know, uh, Taylor who also required robotics in order to be whole, right? Mm. He, he was missing body parts. And so for her, it's no difference. Like they're getting their humanity through people and he's getting his humanity uh, through robots and they're all whole, wow. even in their parts. Great point. My God. And it's none of it is really delivered in a way that drives it home. And that's, mm. I think what's the, the Achilles heel of this film is something that I would love in, in most films is how, you know, subtle the messaging is. Uh, but at some point you do need to kind of have these, these strong deliveries, these strong moments, finding out the, the humans were the reason for the, the nuclear explosion. 
it felt very soft served. Like it wasn't hit hard very well. That should have been a massive yeah. bomb drop for the audience. Yeah. You know, and it's just kind of a throwaway comment. And it's like, well, you, you might want to ramp up the drama on that just a little bit more because his reaction isn't very big. It's just like, oh, okay. And what are we having for dessert? <laughs> like, yeah, that, that, I mean, that changes everything. <laughs> everything. I mean, everything. Great point. It's like they, they don't, they have all these subtle things or like, uh, but there's no, uh, I mean, I love your point about, you know, him needing robots to be whole and robots needing humans to also be whole. Like uh, yeah, that's, that is throughout the film, but it's never actually established until you actually mention that. I'm like, yeah, that's, wow, that's perfect. Um, and yeah, the, 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 oh no, humans actually blew up uh, LA. I mean, that changes everything. I mean, that needs to be, a real, a, a, like a realization moment, you know, or a, a pinnacle moment of the, of that section of the film. Because the immediate question is why doesn't everyone know this? And she says as much, she says why, but the implication is this would end the war if everyone knew it. Yeah. And that should be the bigger motivation. Like you mm -hmm. want to destroy nomad as a big final sequence, but that's not really solving the problem. The problem is humans don't trust and see AI as an yes. enemy. Yes, that doesn't even matter. It's this war is still going to happen, right? I mean, how can AI stop everyone from hating them? Right. Because that's that's the reason. Like humans hate AI because they think AI destroyed LA. Or that's just one of the one of the reasons, right? That's um, the main reason. It's suddenly AI became hostile, and that's that. Yes. Yes. And but then they've been hostile because they're. they're they are killing each other. So now they've been hostile. So the assumption that they were hostile and now they are hostile, you, just destroying Nomad doesn't mean that they're not hostile anymore. So everyone's still going to fight against them. I mean, it's like the Middle East. It's like, doesn't matter. Like we've been killing them. So how can we tell them that we're not hostile? Right, right. Exactly. You know? That's exactly right. And I think that's one of the big hitches is we we feel it, even though we can't articulate, this didn't feel resolved. And yeah. we're, we're ending on this moment, this beautiful moment with Alfie, who's mourning and celebrating at the same time. And that's such a beautiful shot and such a beautiful emotion to see her evolve just in yes. that four, five, 10 second shot of so upset. And then suddenly realizing like, oh, things are getting better and uh, everything's going to be OK. Um, and it ends on her smile. God, melt me. So good. But the, the film, I think, doesn't really know what it's trying to say. Um, and I think. You said it because I'm watching this movie. I walk in and I'm expecting an interesting conversation about artificial intelligence, which is hard to come by. Like we've covered so much ground. What what are you going to say that's new and in terms of how we think about AI, uh, how we're supposed to interact with it? And I think on the one hand, if we're just talking about that aspect, it's saying that AI is a ultimately could be a force for good and to coexist alongside with and that's a positive message. I think we need more of that messaging um, because everyone sees AI as a threat. And I really don't. I, um, even if they, we find a way to make, give them sentience um, and, and empathy and self-awareness and all, the, all those things that you're talking about, uh, I still just don't think the inherent danger is that they're going to wipe us out. There's certainly things you need to be cautious for because we are programming them whenever he says it's just programming. Well, that's us. We did that. <laughs> like, yeah. And so we need to be aware of those things for sure. And this movie, if it wants to talk about how AI is 
ultimately a, a force for good or at least a force for that isn't a danger and that is something we can coexist with it needs to find another way to to deliver that message and to drive it home uh for the end of the film to find a way to say that in a way that brings a satisfying emotional conclusion even if it's not going to be a, a you know an action conclusion because right now that doesn't exist in here either yeah. okay well what i saw coming into this film expecting that one thing a conversation about ai instead i saw the other thing that you pointed out i started seeing about this is actually not about ai ai is a metaphor for humanity and for othering your enemy and dehumanizing people you don't like if they're dehumanized it's so much easier to kill them and to degrade them and to do all the evil necessary things that you know power structures want to do to each other and this movie is trying to make it, and this is the way I saw it. And I didn't know if it was, in, it was not at all clear if it was intentional or not to me getting to the end of the movie is completely unintentional. But if it had been intentional to make a comment, a commentary about you need to humanize your enemy in order to make peace and in order to progress, then you can start building around that. Because again, taking out nomad is also not a route into coexistence into humanizing uh, your enemy instead that's all delivered through joshua taylor who dies like that's not he can't coexist if he's dead um and so you need to find another way to deliver and drive home that message if it's all about humanizing something that you see as a threat um and the moment you can start reevaluating uh life on those terms it should drive a new shift in perspective uh not to say that the best way to end this movie is through you know, a peace summit and a handshake. <laughs> like, uh, but there is a, a way to approach it probably with some action, but also creates, you know, some satisfying emotional conclusion because in no way, in no version of this, the, on the movie's terms, which are, you know, nebulous or in idealistic terms of AI as, as friends or AI as a, uh, as a metaphor, none of that gets driven home in any emotional conclusion that, that makes sense. Now, to the extent that it does, it's through sacrifice, right? Taylor is now going to sacrifice himself. But even that didn't feel intentional. It felt like, mm-hmm. crap, I can either let you die or let you live. Well, I'm not a complete a-hole, so I'm just going to let you live. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to willingly eat my bullet. Mm-hmm. That's not the same thing as an actual genuine sacrifice. He didn't make a decision to die. He had to die. There was no other options. Yeah, he was locked out of the... the- yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so... That message never really finds its full circle either. Uh, and that's kind of the thing that it's wrestling against is it it needed another pass in the writing. And I think Gareth Edwards, that's kind of his Achilles heel. He finds really interesting stories, really interesting things to say, um, and doesn't do a good job of of finishing that message. Because the whole third act of this film was rushed. Like compared to the first, you know, two acts, we are really taking our time. We're really experiencing these worlds and these characters and going side by side as they're making their decisions and seeing the the scale kind of build out and out and out. Um, and then we get to that third act and it just feels like a sprint to nowhere. Um, like That's interesting. The kid dragging the mom through the garden felt wrong. I didn't believe it. I didn't believe this is a good use of her time or that this was a realistic thing for someone her size. I don't feel like she has bionic strength. I feel like she's 
got the strength of a uh, slightly bigger, you know, eight year old or however old she's supposed yeah. to be five years, I guess she feels like slightly stronger Nothing, than that. But. Even if she is, even if she does have super or like, you know, robot strength, we've, we're not shown that yeah. throughout the movie. Like we don't see an example of that. We see example of her other powers, but not of her physical powers. Yeah. So like of lifting things. So yeah, that is kind of like all of a sudden, Oh, and why are there a bunch of copies of her? I guess, cause she's Nirmata. Right. And so. Yeah. So maybe she donated her, her look to robots previously Mm -hmm. the fact it just feels like we're filling in too much yeah right right you know and and we're we're he's giving too much of us uh, to us to fill in the the story rather than than actually telling the story and and doing the the heavy lifting i mean it's not that kind of a movie sci-fi is most of the time are not the kind of movie that are just going to to make you tell the story. I mean, even stories, you know, iconic stories like 2001 that make you fill in a lot. Like, I mean, the, you know, still give you a lot. They yeah. still give you a lot to then fill in holes in between. So, I, yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. Yeah, sure. and so I think for that sequence, what I would have preferred that is kind of a middle ground would be she takes her out of the bag realizes she can't drag her leaves her there in the space and plugs her in. And now for one, I don't feel like the, the clock is wrong because he had 10 minutes on the clock. And now I'm like, there's no way in the in the last four minutes, she was able to take her down, drag her halfway across the ship um, before running out of time. Like I just felt wrong. And so instead, if you leave her there and you give her a few moments to try to wake her up and it's not working, now we've we've planted that seed and now we can still feel like the timeline starts to make a little more sense. That's a great point. You yeah. know, it, it just it still plays well. You give her some more time to uh to to spend with her mom um and all that kind of stuff. In a similar way, though a little different, the music Hans Zimmer great. What didn't make sense for me was early in the film we're, they're they're doing that that big mission to go find Alfie, uh, the weapon, and they put on Radiohead, everything in its right place. Oh right! Uh, and I was like, wait, great song, but it pulled me way out of the movie because I start mm-hmm. I started listening to the song. I one hundred percent can't tell you what happened in the sequence that the mm-hmm. song is playing because I was just listening. It was totally random. It was completely random. It was like it was like Gareth was was like, "Hey, I love Radiohead and I love this song. Let's jam it into this movie because why not?" Yeah, you know. And of course, it's a great song. Uh, yeah, but you have Hans Zimmer. Like he was, yeah, on- and it's the only time really where there's like an actual song in the movie. Like the rest of it is score. So, I mean, you don't they don't revisit it. You know, it's not like a a, a, a theme going throughout of like. Either either everything in the right place or or the, the band in in general like yeah and, so and totally it didn't make sense because it's it's motivated by the characters they're like getting hyped up to go on a mission with guns blazing and what do they do they put on a mellow track <laughs> like what yeah yeah <laughs> that is yeah. if you want to play a mellow track that needs to be like non diegetic it needs to come from outside the world. That's uh-huh. us creating a moment for the film, not the the characters in the film creating a mellow moment for themselves. That makes no story sense whatsoever. Agreed. Yeah. So that was a weird decision. And 
I don't know. I think there's a lot of things that I was like, okay, that, that makes sense. Um, and it, it works. I think, so for instance, setting up humanity as the bad guys, um, and AI as the good guys. Cool. I'm, I don't think this was wrong. I don't think he did a bad job. In fact, in some ways it's really effective, which is the use of kick the dog storytelling, almost literally, uh, which is when they get out of the chopper, they go to the village and this is where they're looking for the the hatch, mm. you know, to get in. And the guy, one of the guys, picks up the puppy. Like, no one's talking, so he grabs this little girl's puppy and puts a gun to its head. And it's like, oh, so he's not kicking the dog. He's going to shoot the dog. And now you know who the bad guy is. This is what, you know, we generally call kick the dog storytelling, where, you know, we like pets. We like dogs. If you kick the dog, we know you're the asshole. And you're the bad yeah. guy. You're the villain. And so humans are bad because... What good guy does this? And there's also elements to me of Vietnam being inserted um, mm. whenever you're seeing this village being raided by Americans and they're in this, what I think they call it, New Asia. Uh, and it's basically where Vietnam is. I mean, th there's a lot of countries in this area, Cambodia and whatnot, but, uh, and they shoot in all, all those areas. Uh, they're filming in this area. They're using these kind of visual elements of villages and Americans with weapons and terrorizing civilians like uh, in every way, I'm I'm just getting like nom flashbacks over here. And so, of course, you know, we're the bad guys and that's fine. I just, I don't know. I, I think it works so far as if you want us to just not be on human side and to like AI, like that's a, to me, it's a, it's a very blunt instrument instead of trying to craft something a little more delicate that. I don't want to disassociate from humanity. I think that's my problem. It's like, I still want to find humanity within humanity. Yeah. Um, and I know we get some, we get a lot of that through Taylor. And so I'm glad that he, he never becomes a, a bad guy in the story, like at all, to the extent that he is, it's in his ignorance at the beginning of the film. And even that is pretty light, light touch. But I think there's just another version of the story where we're looking at humanity with a little more complexity and this feels very blunt and, and obvious uh, in that kind of way. Yeah. And, and you brought something up earlier and I, I wanted to circle back at it. You, we were talking about Haroon on the boat, right. Mm. With Joshua Taylor. And he, I think that's where he says, you know, what will happen when AI wins nothing. Yeah. But he's going to kill Taylor. Right. I'm like, yeah. How is that like how are you any better than humanity if if you're retaliating against someone who honestly is probably your best bet? If like if you're really that smart, if you're really you know, like artificial intelligence is that much better than 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 humans, then you know that violence just for the sake of retaliation or violence begets only violence. So why would you kill Taylor just cuz he's there? You think that's going to stop the you know the humans it's obviously not and anybody who's more intelligent than human beings would know that so why are we going to kill him then why does he have to escape like and how do you fail at that like i don't you know he's literally in front of you yeah. so it 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 didn't it didn't make ai the better hmm. candidate i guess is what right. i'm saying yeah yeah, yeah the, the, it like like we didn't we're not hoping ai will win now because they're just as bad. So that I mean, was that's the point. What, what's funny is I had that exact same conversation in my head while watching that scene. And oh. I was like, 
okay, you know, maybe, but it's also war. And right now they're doing what they have to until the war can end and then they can go back to doing until then oh. they're forced into participating in war. But I think it goes back to what yeah. we've been saying, which is what you really spelled out well, which is we're having to do too much filling in the blanks. Yeah. You can do that to a point, but that's a good moment for them to just say it out loud. Have Taylor say, okay, you're not going to kill us, but you're going to kill me. Huh? Um, and then he can comment. I don't want to, I have to, um, you You just solved that entire scene for me (laughs) just right then, you know, which goes back to your point of, they just needed one more pass in the script. I think, because all of these problems are, are very solvable with a little bit of dialogue. I I mean, and it doesn't have to be awful exposition that we both hate, you Mm -hmm. know, it can be good exposition. Like what you just said is good exposition. It's, it's, one character calling out another character who's then giving the response to that character that fills in the hole for us. Yes. That we don't have to ask later on. Like it makes sense. I have to kill you because that's my mission. That's my mission, but I don't want to boom. You know, like that's the best, that's the best exposition coming through conflict or characters are motivated to find out. He wants to stop dying. (laughs) He wants to not die. And that's a good motivation for (laughs) your character to say things. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. Um, And there's some other things that I'm like, that that weren't really clear to me. Like early on, he gets shot, right? Uh, Taylor gets shot. Um, And I I can't remember, uh, you know what? I'm not, I'm going to throw that out because I can't remember if it happened later in the film or at the opening scene. Um, Never mind. So I'll edit that out. I should have made a better note. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, the the use of flashbacks is interesting because he's using it to build depth, right? More relationship depth between uh, Maya and, and Taylor. And he's also using it to build out exposition at certain points. And that's fine. It's, it's tough. Like, I think he, I think he does it about as well as you could probably do it. I think in order to do it better, you need to build out more time. Um, and I know he felt, probably against the the runtime limit on this thing already which is probably why the final sequence feels so rushed as he's like i'm already at like 215 220 and i gotta wrap this puppy up um and so but i think building more emotional depth between taylor and maya would have been good to have just a little more meat on those bones instead of just memories flashing back let's see them fight and resolve let's see them go through something emotional together and then that pulls us into more empathy watching characters resolve conflict creates so much more relationship depth than yeah. just watching characters be happy together and perfect in bliss like Agreed. that that's really hard because it feels plasticky you know and yeah. we don't buy that we see it for what it is as a as a, an emotional ploy instead of like relational depth um and that's just really really challenging but to the, I think the highlights for this thing, man, apparently he really likes to shoot, uh, himself. So he's Gareth is like camera operating most of this movie. And that's cool to me as a director, seeing that done on a big scale, like this is an $80 million movie. It certainly looks like a 200, $250 million movie. Um, it's gorgeous. I know everyone's freaking out that they shot it on a Sony FX three in which I cannot imagine all the fixing that they had to do in post a lot of noise issues, I'm sure. But his thing from what I 
saw in an interview was it's a light camera. And if he's going to be holding it all day, uh, he doesn't want to get whooped by having a 20, 30 pound rig. Because if you start gearing up, you know, an, an Alexa, the camera mm-hmm. itself might be whatever, five, six pounds, um, eight pounds, but it still needs batteries, a fat lens. lens, Terra deck on top for monitoring remotely for your focus puller. They're going to need. And so you start building on more batteries and more gear. And before you know it, you do have a 30 pound monster on your hands. And it's like, yeah, you want to hold that thing for 10 hours? No, no, you do not. Yeah. Uh, and so he wisely said, you know what? I'm comfortable with this. And the nice thing though, about the FX three, he said, one of the reasons that he wanted to use it was it's low light capabilities. And so he could shoot at, you know, a 12,800 ISO um, on this thing, which means you need much less lighting, which means you need fewer crew members on your G and E team, your grip and electric so that you're not having to pay those guys that much, you know, money, not just for their work, but for the lighting gear itself. And that also means you're flexible. You can turn around your shot much faster. And Uh I remember hearing he was frustrated working on like Godzilla uh, because he wanted to like, Oh, I like this other angle. Okay. Well, that's going to take us a half day to set up because we have trucks and lighting gear and uh, we're going to need in the way. Yeah. So it's going to take 40 people, you know, three hours to, to shift all that around, but we'll get your shot. And he's like, Oh, okay, well let's not do that. Let's save our day and, and stay where we are and make it work. Whereas here he doesn't have all that equipment. Now, I think there's a bit of a myth that he was just running and gunning with like him and three people. There's, I just can't believe that that was the case. I mean, between hair and makeup alone and c- props, uh, costuming, like you're going to have a team of people working on this thing. Now you might save a lot in terms of gear on set. I know they're, they're Hollywooding, you know, lights on boom poles, that kind of thing. And that's great. You do save a ton in terms of your flexibility on set. But this was not a, a, a slim crew. There's just no way. I yeah. I would have no to way. call bullshit on that. There's just no way you're you're really that lean. Now, you're lean enough to be mobile and flexible, but you still probably have a good 10, 15 people on your crew minimum, not even including like actors and background extras and all that. But I think his real genius is in his visual effects acuity. Like he has such a great vision in his head of what he wants to create, what it takes to create it, that he was able to shoot and edit this entire movie and then send it to post. And that's what blows my mind. Wow. To be able to say, okay, I know there's going to be this monster uh, uh, shot of a, uh, this crazy big whatever police car uh, to, for lack of a better term a ship a floating hover ship yeah. um and i'm gonna tilt down from this ship that doesn't exist in my shot um now i'm not aware of him using any kind of previs in camera if he did have that set up very cool great use of but i just don't think he did i think he was shooting it in his head and saying okay it's probably gonna be right about there I'm going to tilt down. We're going to boom down. Like he had a crane. They were, they were operating cranes out there. Again, that's grip. Like if you have dolly tracks, Mm -hmm. that's grip. You're going to be using a lot of crew members for that stuff. That's not run and gun. I'm sorry. It's not, you're setting up a lot for that stuff, but he's thinking through all that stuff and seeing in his head, this is my camera move. We're going to, we're going to crane down to Allison Janney on the phone. And we're going to get a nice shot of her delivering her line that all in, uh, you know, you know, proper sequencing and 
to be able to edit all of that and then send it to Weta or whoever was doing post work on this thing saves so much time. I can only imagine how grateful the VFX artists were that they're not going to get six months into developing a shot and uh, an effect and then get a call like, actually, we know we said it was going to be two shots. It's actually 20 and we needed yeah. the shot and the shot and the shot. And it's like, yeah. Effer, and they they smile, say thank you, and then curse everyone out on the way to get yeah. some coffee. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so much cheaper, amazing, you yeah. know. To, uh, and even better if he was able to actually lock it, not just picture edit, but color, send it to them. That there's just so fewer passes that you have to do. You send out a, a quick, you know, rigging of everything. Hey, is this what you, does this work? Oh no, uh, make it bigger or, you know, make this thing jut out like this. Uh, okay. Got it. And then once you lock the, the, the first pass, the, the draft, the rough, then you can start quickly scaling it up, like adding textures, adding lighting, uh, adding all the, the, the color that matches the scene because you know exactly what you need to match and there's not going to be and where it's going to be in the next shot so much faster and you probably saved a good a hundred million dollars on video yeah. effects alone, like, and made everyone happy in the process, but he has a background in it. He understands how it works. Uh, and just, this is also, I think the discipline that's been lost in filmmaking. Cause that's kind of the way it used to be. You mm. think Spielberg is rolling up on set and, and winging it for Jurassic park. He knew what he wanted. He knew what every shot was going to be. Because he had to, he had to be that discipline. James Cameron had to be that discipline making Terminator uh, and the abyss. Like he knew what he needed way before getting on set. And I think too many people are showing up on set with a good idea and then changing it on the fly, um, which works if you're doing it all yourself, I guess. But uh, if you're putting other people on the hook and saying, how much are you going to charge to do X, Y, and Z, but then changing it to ABC later, you're just jamming everyone. And so visually, this is one of the most stunning sci-fi films I've ever seen. Um, I just wish the story elements, you know, matched it because he could have had one for the record books, um, mm -hmm. especially with all the performances because the, the emotion in this movie is so good. I mean, yeah. even the little girl crying over the puppy broke yeah. my heart. <laughs> oh man, that felt real, real like, poor little thing. Oh, oh the, yeah. the, the bomb in the backpack when they're getting into the chopper um, and they're feeling oh, yeah. like, Oh, we just got out. And then she sees there's a bomb on her and the horror on her face as she's screaming before the explosion was amazing. Like yeah. he's getting such great performances from everyone. And just that extra, you know, two months, three months of thinking through your story and, and fine tuning it, I think would have paid just massive, massive dividends. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, there's other little elements. I like the sound design. It's interesting. I I think I would do things differently. I'm just a different type of filmmaker when it comes to interacting with your visual elements. Like the Nomad um, is hovering and it's got that gorgeous laser that starts scanning everything. And he uses that that sound effect of the woo, 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 right? And that's cool. It, it, it works. It looks. And this is a very basic kind of fundamental aspect of filmmaking which is if you see something you need to hear it that's why we hear guns mm -hmm. move around all the time like they got all these loose parts on the inside of them every time <laughs> <laughs> it's like i don't know if that thing is safe to shoot <laughs> but, yeah great point but they that's just a common thing and i get it 
I don't know that I personally like leaning that way for the way I tell stories. I feel like it's much more grounded and believable when things interact in a way that not that we expect to in a movie, but in a way that we experience in real life. I think that can pull people in further depending on the story you're telling and all the context stuff, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it's still cool. I mean, it looks cool. It sounds cool. I'm afraid of it. Those explosions are some of the coolest explosions I've seen like ever. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I don't know. That's kind of, Oh, my God. Well, <laughs> that's exhausting. Well said. I mean, I think that you hit the nail on the head. Uh, I think it just needed a little bit more in those few moments. Uh, and then at the end, it did feel it just felt wrong. Like, I don't know. I don't know how to say it. Uh, great point about the dragging her out. I, I love your solution there to just plug her in. And then all of a sudden, she just happens to be in the field because she's charged up and has wandered out there. You know, yeah. like, why not? That feels and then they they just see each other. Yeah. Anyway, I, I don't really have anything else to add. I again, I think that sci-fi is very important. I don't care if I love it or not. I think it's yeah. it's like um, it's, there's a reason why it's our favorite genre, I think, because it takes something that is fantastical in the moment and turns it into reality. And maybe in 50, 100 years it could be reality. I mean, there's a reason why Star Trek is Star Trek, right? There's a reason why we talk about like warp drive still today and, 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 you know, beam me up Scotty, because we think, you know, these things could be reality later on, you know, and it inspires us to, I don't know, and create new frontiers and to tr like push the boundaries of what is actually possible you know, if you look at what was possible a hundred years ago, it was nothing like it is today. So, and that's just a hundred years. Imagine, uh -huh. you know, two, 300 years from now, but without, you know, new and cool storytelling, it, it, science fiction based, which me, just means that it doesn't exist now. Hmm. Like that's it. That's all science fiction is, yeah. is taking something that doesn't exist and put it in a world where it does. That's it. What do you want that to be? And it could be anything. It's not like horror where the whole point is to create suspense and either scare you or make you feel stressed. Like this is something different. This is creating something from nothing. I think that's more important than any other genre because it makes us, you know, think about what possible means, you know, and, and yeah. So I will always take sci-fi no matter how good or bad the film is or disjointed it might feel i think that that um gareth edwards did a great job in a lot of ways and yeah. um i love that it's getting the buzz i love that yeah. he used that camera and and so people are talking about it and everything maybe we'll get more like it you know and they'll be a little bit more buttoned up like you in, in the suggestions you've made you know oh man so, well yeah. said um what are you going to recommend this week this week uh i had it where is it oh i you know, I, I've watched a lot this week, but I'm not going to recommend a film. I'm going to recommend uh, um, a program. And I know you're not in love with it, but I am going to recommend uh, Da Vinci Resolve. Um, I just kind of discovered it. And I know it's been around for a long time, but it feels much more along the lines of how I like to create things. And I just love the power that you get. Like, I'm, I'm, I've been using Premiere for years and I know you're a Premiere user, but I just feel like, and I think you agree that like the coloring in Premiere is atrocious. It's terrible. It's yep. a complete afterthought, yep. you know, and if you need to color, you never do it in there because you have like a couple of options 
and that's that's i don't know it's just an afterthought but in resolve it is the feature i mean you can edit in it um if you want to but it is the feature and it there's a free version where and you can use it to your heart's content if you want to pay for it it's a single you pay for it once there's no subscription based bullshit it's you pay for it once and it's yours um, and you get all the updates and all that stuff. And it's super powerful. And not only that, it's like fun to play with. Like that's yeah. I started learning it and I thought, oh, my God, this is so much fun. I want to go to the next shot. OK, now I want to go to the next shot. And I'd spend hours on it just fucking around learning. And I just uh, yeah, so it's, it's a lot of fun. So I'll, I'll recommend that DaVinci Resolve. Nice. Yeah, I love it for for coloring. I hate it for editing. That is yeah, the antithesis for my workflow. Like I, yeah. I work in a very specific way, um, but I know a lot of editors who swear by it and they're like F Premiere, which... <laughs> I totally get. <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not disagreeing with that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I just need something better, especially whenever I start incorporating like After Effects and some of those elements. But for sure, yeah, for yeah, coloring, at least at a minimum. But if if editing is if if that's your workflow for editing, then I'm sure it's freaking amazing. Well, um, and the cool thing is, and we talked about it, you can edit and all that stuff in Premiere and After Effects, and then just import the timeline, and it gives you yeah. clipped up. All your clips are separated just like they were in Premiere. And I, coming from a world of music where it is impossible (laughs) to do that from DAW to DAW, from like Studio One to Logic to Pro Tools, it is impossible to do that and have it make any sense. It's all a freaking mess. If you finish in one DAW, you should, or if you start in one DAW, you should finish in the same one because it is a nightmare. Coming from that world, to this where I had done my edit and premiere and then I wanted to put it in resolve. It'll just import, you can just import the timeline and it looks like it did in premiere and everything is there. It's like, wow, why can't music be this way? This is so beautiful. So you can keep your premiere and edit in there and then just do color and resolve. It's so great. So anyway, nicely done. Anyway. I'm going to recommend a book also not, not a movie. Ted Chang, Story of Your Life and Other Stories. It's a book of short stories. I'm not a big short story fan, but after reading two of his books, I also read Exhalation. I suddenly was really into it. I, I like, if I'm going to read a book, I want it to be one big story that I can just kind of sit with uh, for, you know, a week. And his stories are, they make sense as short stories because they're, they have some big ideas but they don't necessarily resolve in a way that you would want a book to resolve in. So I can see why he kept them as short stories to give you an idea to punch you in the face with some good science fiction um, and fantasy and all, all kinds of stories. But if you want that, if you want something that's bite-sized, make you think, has some really interesting uh, thoughts, uh, Ted Chang's books are, are amazing. And I really loved Story of Your Life and Other Stories. Uh, very much worth the read. Yeah. Cool. So... Art Spotlight this week, um, our friend, friend of the show, uh, Byron Reese, uh, he's done a lot of work in artificial intelligence and has a lot to say. He's written some books on it, and I cut together a demo reel for him. He does a lot of speaking engagements, and so I, I he asked me to cut a demo reel for him and his speaking engagements, and so I did. And so it's like a, I don't know, eight-minute, nine-minute video of him telling these stories, and uh, it's interesting. And if you want to feel inspired and hopeful and less, I don't know, pessimistic about the future, he's got the antidote for you. Like he's so optimistic about the direction of humanity and the direction of how we interact with artificial intelligence and all these ways. And 
and with reason. That's the thing is I know things look, you know, dour right now. There's so much war going on in the world. And there's so many things that we need to fix and get better at. And it can be easy to lean into uh, the negativity, uh, which is such a light way of saying it. But, you know, it's so dark and lean away from the darkness. If you want a moment, a ray of hope that's based in logic, that's not just whimsy and and crossing your fingers. I think he's got a lot to say uh, and you'll get a, a good taste of that in his, his his reel that I cut together. So, yeah, you'll find that in the show notes. Stay tuned for next week. Uh, we're going to cover a film uh, called Adaptation, Charlie Kaufman. I think it's only a second script that we've covered, which the first one was Eternal Sunshine. And so we'll we'll look at his other film that is pretty famous uh, with Nick Cage and Adaptation. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a note, subscribe, review, uh, tell us what you find interesting, and maybe we'll cover a film uh, in that vein. And if you want to comment on this episode, you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash the creator. And our quote of the day is from Isaac Asimov. Individual science fiction stories may seem as trivial as ever to the blinder critics and philosophers of today, but the core of science fiction, its essence, has become crucial to our salvation if we are to be saved at all. Uh, yeah, that's exactly exactly it. If we don't look, if we don't look at what is impossible, how could it ever be possible? Hmm. You know, like then we're just living right now with however things are. You know, can you imagine your life without a microwave? I mean, really. <laughs> Certainly not without an air fryer. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, there you go. There you go. I mean, all of these things, though, all of these things are, they were once considered witchcraft or impossible or something that could never even be imagined, right? Because, and, uh, you know, you know, I guess we don't need to, uh, like, attribute it all to the genre of science fiction. You know, that too was an invention at one point. Um, but just the idea of looking at something differently, not even to the future, but looking at something differently that will then craft the future is what's so cool. That's what science fiction is, right? So. I feel like as entertainers or, you know, we look at progress and we see the scientists, we see the engineers um, and the researchers who are out there doing the real work, but it takes dreamers. It takes people who tell stories to really capture the imagination of those people. Like, what are they aiming for if we don't also provide them with some ammunition? And it's our creativity as storytellers um, and as an audience member, just me sitting and watching the creator is helping all of that. And it doesn't feel real because I'm so far removed and I'm just sitting in a seat. Uh, but it's all it's all a part of one big society, one big culture, um, one human element. Um, and it's me showing up to the theater and saying, I want more of that and I'm going to pay for it. That's what's going to keep propelling us forward um, is saying, I like that. And getting the imagination going uh, Sony FX three. Well, maybe now the FX four um, or three B uh, will have whatever global shutter. And maybe it'll have built in ND filters and uh, XLR inputs so that I will buy the, the, the X3B, you know, um, mm -hmm. and that's what I need as a filmmaker. You just don't know. And storytelling is such a crucial part. It's, it's such a 
fundamental element to humanity and to why we are here today in, in the first place. Without sto- storytelling, uh, we don't really have a lot of purpose, I don't think. You know, it's, it's, it's all becomes a little too primitive and too primal, whereas these are the things that keep us going. This is where mm-hmm. we find hope. You can't find hope if there's no story to tell. You know, you can't find solutions if you don't start exploring those problems of the impossible, like Todd was talking about. Like, we need all of that. And and we're all playing our part in ways that sometimes we just don't appreciate. And science fiction is such a crucial element because we are taking a grounded reality and saying, what if we just changed one thing? What if, you know, our robots could think for themselves? What if? Just what if? And that's the really cool thing that science fiction does because it it says here's a problem with humanity. Now let's talk about how to how how we might create that symbolically through science fiction. You know, horror films sometimes do that. Science fiction is always thinking about that. Mm-hmm. How do we how do we create the problems of humanity and talk about them in a way that no one feels accused, no one feels the finger pointed at them, like. I thought of Vietnam. They didn't say Vietnam once in this entire film. You know, you could put, like Todd said, fill in the blank. These two people, humans and AI, could fill in for anybody. You and your neighbor. (laughs) Like, it could really stand in for anything. That's what science fiction is so good at. I think it is core to our salvation in so many ways because it makes us think in ways that we, we can step outside of ourselves and start empathizing in other people's lives and other people's experiences because we're no longer on the block, you know? And that's just a beautiful way of creating ideas for solutions um, in a way that is pretty inoffensive and makes you think. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Great quote, man. Wow. Well, this was fu- This was fun, man. Yeah. <laughs> this was good. This, this is great. Way better than I thought <laughs> it would be, to be honest. I was scared coming in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, hopefully you guys had a good time too. Uh, and and hopefully we shed some light on this, uh, this film a little bit, uh, the creator. And uh, you, maybe if you have any other things to add, we'd love to hear it in the comments. Uh, please subscribe, review us wherever you get your podcast share us with your friends it all helps a lot if there's a film that you'd like to see us cover that we haven't in the 254 episodes that we've done uh i know there's a lot more films that we haven't done uh so please make a suggestion maybe we will cover it um we'll at least respond to you probably maybe uh until next time i'm todd i'm wes go watch the movies